to Conveyancing Coffee Break, the bite-sized podcast for busy conveyancing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance. My name is Mandy Brown, and during these episodes, we'll be discussing topical and relevant issues and case studies on a whole raft of conveyancing subjects. Welcome to the latest episode of Convincing Coffee Break with Richard Snape and me, Mandy Brown. Today, we'll be discussing hot convincing issues and what the mortgage companies are doing. Richard, last time we did a podcast about a month or so ago, back in July, we were talking about EWS1 certificates and cladding. Has anything changed since then? Yeah, these external wall system things which are required originally for high-rise buildings with at least two dwellings that they were 18 metres or more in height, which roughly is six storeys. Uh, so they were limited originally to uh, high-rise buildings of 18 metres or more in height, but over slowly over time, lower storey and uh, lower rise buildings have started to require them, the mortgage companies. You might have seen that it was on the news uh, again on July the 21st when the Ministry of Housing and Robert Jenrick announced they've reached agreement with specifically Lloyds, HSBC and Barclays and some other smaller mortgage companies that they wouldn't require these things for high-rise buildings with less than 18 metres in height. And it was in the news, and it was presented in the news as if the government was changing the law. It's not a law at all. It's just a requirement that's been concocted between the mortgage companies and the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. Um, it's a bit early days yet, but that's uh, what uh, uh, the Ministry of Housing is saying. We won't need them for, for less than 18 metre in height buildings. And they're also saying, they were saying this earlier in the year, actually, and last year as well, and nothing happened, that if you needed to remove cladding for buildings less than 18 metres in height, you would be paying more than £50 per month via service charge, and there'll be a government loan scheme. Whether the mortgage companies play ball on this is another matter, because I've heard stories already. It's uh, August the 4th today. Uh, some of the mortgage companies are just uh, ignoring these announcements, so we'll have to see. That's the first one. Okay, perfect. And what's the latest on ground rents? Yeah, another thing I was mentioning last time is uh, this leasehold reform ground rent bill, which uh, a couple of days ago certainly was waiting for its third reading in in the, uh, the House of Lords before it goes on to the House of Commons. They, It's the thing that with a few exceptions, like shared ownerships, bans, uh, uh, ground rents other than a peppercorn on newly sold dwellings of more than 21-year leases, but it only applies uh, to new premises. Uh, there was a vote in the, the House of Lords to try and make it apply to existing properties, but that was defeated. So it's almost going to lead to two tiers, a system of two tiers, you know, the pre-leasehold reform ground rent bill, uh, leases and post. The other thing which became apparent and didn't seem to have been thought about previously it would apply to a surrender and regrant because uh, that's a new lease um, if it's a statutory surrender and regrant it's a peppercorn anyway but most uh these extensions are not through a statute not through the leasehold reform acts but they are just voluntarily agreed and presumably when the legislation comes in they will also be at a peppercorn you won't be able to have a high ground rent as ha- tends to happen nowadays They've introduced a provision whereby the um, landlords will have to give the tenants notice of their ability to extend the lease at a peppercorn in the future. And so tenants will not be sort of badgered into going through voluntary extensions just before the legislation comes in. 
I did check once again with um, various mortgage companies and their part twos. And certainly as of this morning, Barclays still say that we won't accept a high or low ground rent and go on to say that uh, we may accept a low ground rent, e.g. E a peppercorn, in certain circumstances, but only may so it's present, you know, suggest that you should still be telling them. You know, examples being a residence management company or housing association, local authority, landlord or lease extension under the Leasehold Reform Act. Uh, I presume they're going to have to change that one day else they will not be lending on leaseholds. Uh, I suppose that's the other thing which has happened. So, Richard, moving on to a totally different subject, it's been a while since you've mentioned uh, Japanese knotweed. What are the mortgage companies saying about it? And tell us a bit about the history. Yeah, I mean, I haven't mentioned it because I haven't seen too much ever since all these lockdowns started. I miss my train journeys going up and down the country, seeing knotweed on the railway embankments. The history, it's... I mean, it started to cause major problems you know, a few years ago, but there's been Japanese knotweed in this country since the 1840s. It was brought into Kew Gardens and it was used as an ornamental plant in various stately homes. It's quite an attractive thing this time of the year, but unfortunately there's none around here. And uh, it's, uh, it was then, it was sort of, it was used as a sort of barrier plant as well because it grows very rapidly. And then in the 1860s, it started to be used to stop landslips on railway embankments and the likes. Hence, you get so much on, you know, the edge of railway lines. If I get the train into Manchester from here in Cheshire, then you see miles of knotweed. You can pick it as you go through Stockport Station. I wouldn't recommend it. When I was a kid in Stoke-on-Trent, there used to be knotweed everywhere and the children would play in it because you can strip off, don't do this, right, but you can strip off the leaves and it just leaves a flexible bamboo-like uh, you know, sort of stem behind and you could just hide in the knotweed and hit other kids as they came along. This was before the internet when we had to make our own entertainment. But uh, you can see, again, sort of amazing that we think it's a new phenomenon. You can see gardening sort of magazines from before the First World War pointing out the dangers of Japanese knotweed. But some years ago now, the mortgage companies started to really worry about the valuation implications and the structural implications of knotweed. And obviously, I don't know why, but we started to have questions, TA6 inquiries about uh, Japanese knotweed and CPSC inquiries for commercial property as well, for that matter. And uh, the TA6 is basically saying, is the property affected by knotweed? Yes, no, don't know. And it could be affected by knotweed if it's next door or next door but one, even potentially it could be. Uh, the guidance says uh, in the to the TA6 is uh, said it could be affected by knotweed if it's within three metres of the boundary. And if your client doesn't know whether it's affected by knotweed, you can't see it when it's dormant beneath ground level in the winter they should be ticking the don't know box and not the no box because there could be a big, big damages claim if you take the wrong box. The mortgage companies, as they started to, you know, for value is the one who should be spotting this Japanese knotweed or obviously if you can find out from the TA6 responses to inquiries. And a lot of them started to, I suppose, for want of a better expression, a good 10, 12 years ago, sort of um, panic about the risks of knotweed. There'd actually been a report with, um, in 2012 which suggested it could be affected within, if it was within seven metres of your boundary. Um, and a lot of the mortgage companies do check yourselves because these things change on a regular basis, are still using the seven metres, which uh, I think uh, a lot of people are, you know, sort of would now accept it's not seven metres, it's three metres. 
Uh, last uh, or two months, or one month and a half ago on June the 22nd, the, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors produced a new guidance on Japanese knotweed. And also there's been a parliamentary uh, Science and Technology Commission report from 2019 on it, which basically says it's no more likely to break through foundations than lots of other plants. It's on a list of non-natural invasive plant species under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which are you know, illegal to cause to be propagated in the wild. But on that list, there's a whole series of plants nowadays, including Japanese seaweed and Japanese kelp, so a lot of Japanese stuff, curly water weeds and... Uh, People think I'm joking when I mention it in courses, but duck potato uh, is also there on the list. Have a look at that yourselves. Look it up on Wikipedia. It can't be wrong. But uh, the, a lot of the mortgages, well, all the mortgages have something about Japanese not. You know, so the, um, the Parliamentary Commission uh, Committee, sorry, and uh, also the RICS guidance basically says they're too risk averse as they are in various other areas besides. But I know, for instance, Santander say that if they're not weeds within seven metres of uh, your premises, any dwelling part of the living space, then they'll want it removed before they lend, not just treated, but removed. And people like uh, a lot of lenders like HSBC and Nationwide say that if it's within seven metres, they seem to still be using this seven metres guide. Uh, of any living accommodation. They'll want it treated by somebody who's got a specialist insurance and is able to treat the knotweed. Uh, others like Metro just say that if it's within seven metres of any living space, we won't lend full stop. Leeds say we'll do it on a case-by-case -case basis. I can think of others. Um, things like Lloyds and Halifax will say that uh, it can affect the value and it can affect the structural stability of the building so we'll basically just lend it to a valuer you know leave it to a valuer or surveyor so we've got no standardization really lots of lenders will lend unlike about 10 years ago but uh, if it's sufficiently close to the building they'll want uh, specialist uh, reports and the likes and there's also a TA6 inquiry. If you had a Japanese knotweed report, you know, please provide it. Uh, so that's more or less the latest on that. It's still causing chaos because uh, I think the, the jury's out. So they're no more dangerous than, well, it's not as dangerous, these reports say, as having a tree close to your property. And you only have to look at what trees can, tree roots can do to a pavement to know that fact. And it will only break through uh, cracks in the foundations. It won't break through the actual foundations. can cause major problems to uh, drainage and uh, sewage systems, but uh, so can quite a few other things. That was really interesting, Richard. And finally, can you tell us the latest on state rent charges? Yeah, before we do, perhaps I forgot to mention, I should have mentioned that uh, Japanese knotweed, you can eat it. Uh, there are two, to my knowledge, Japanese knotweed restaurants now both open, I'm assuming, one in Bristol and one in Brighton. And uh, you can drink it as well. There's Japanese knotweed gin that you might be aware of. I think it's called Ginderella. You can get it on Amazon if you need a bottle for tomorrow morning. But yeah, estate rent charges, just as you thought things were getting better, um, are still causing problems because of this. Uh, provision section 121 of the law of property act uh, subsection four of which says that um, if you don't pay your rent charge of any type within uh, 40 days of it becoming due whether demanded or not the beneficiary the rent owner can create a 99 year lease over your property and that lease would bind the mortgage company 
um, as long as the rent charge was created first, and it always will be created first. So the mortgagees will be bound by a 99-year lease. You can exclude Section 121 of the Law of Property Act, but you have to do so in the instrument that creates the rent charge. I mean, one of the problems of getting up outside the mortgage companies is primarily because an article in PLC, just as you were trying to persuade people that these things don't have to be called rent charges to be rent charges, this article said that, uh, well... They don't issue out of land. We need cases, I admit. But uh, Section 1 of the Rent Charges Act of 1977 says um, uh, a rent charge is any annual or other periodic payments uh, charged on or issued out of land unless it's a rent under a lease or interest payments. It doesn't have to be called a rent charge. And the question is whether it's issuing out of land. I don't understand the argument. I mean, it can be called a service charge and still be a rent charge. If it's pure direct covenants and restrictions then it's not a rent charge. And there has been a movement amongst the developers to go back to direct covenants and restrictions. But for me, once you've got a periodic payment and it's mentioned in the transfer, the argument must be that it's issuing out of land. And if somebody denies that fact, well, what's the problem with excluding Section 121 of the Law of Property Act anyway? And the other thing I don't for the life of me understand is that if it's not a rent charge and you haven't got direct covenants and restrictions on the register, then what is it? Because presumably it's just purely contractual. And uh, if it's purely contractual, it won't bind third parties. Section uh, 6.8.4 of the UK Finance, CML as it will always be for me, Lender's Handbook, says that uh, if you ha- aren't going to have the, the roads and sewers adopted, then you've got to report that, uh, in your opinion, uh, appropriate arrangements for repair, maintenance and costs are in place. And if it's purely contractual, if there's no rent charge and there's no direct covenants, I don't think you can actually comply with the part one. A lot of the developers are accepting the argument now to exclude section 121. I'll get back to direct covenants and restrictions. You can take out insurance, uh, mortgagee only insurance. The first mortgage company, this was uh, two years or more ago now, but the first mortgage company to ever put anything in their part twos was, uh, was Barclays. Um, and they say that uh, we'll either want Section 121 excluded or a mortgagee protection clause with at least 28 days notice so we can find out about the arrears and pay them off or a residence management company limited by guarantee. The next was Nationwide. Nationwide have changed their part two several times since, but they say that we'll always want a mortgagee protection clause at least two months notice. We won't accept insurance, uh, we'll, as well as the mortgagee protection clause, will want um, either Section 121 to be excluded or provision whereby if the lease is created, it'll be surrendered on a reasonable administration charge once the arrears have been paid. There's only about 15, 16 mortgage companies who've got anything in their part twos. But make sure, unless Section 121 is excluded, certainly, I would always tell a mortgage company because although unless they've changed very recently, it's not in, say, HSBC or Santander's part twos. I've seen them on numerous occasions where they've refused to lend unless Section 121 is excluded and or a mortgagee protection clause. Or alternatively, if the mortgage company will accept an insurance policy, make sure your clients are where it's mortgage only. And that's it. It's the latest on estate rent charges. Thank you, Richard, for another interesting session. Until next time. Okay.
You have been listening to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break, the only podcast for busy convincing professionals, brought to you by Lawshore Insurance, the UK's leading provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshoreinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings.